Hey there, my name is Ryan Hughley, and I'm lead pastor of Ridgeline Church in Salt Lake City, Utah. Thanks for checking out our podcast. Our goal is to help as many people as possible meet and mature in the Jesus of the Bible. For more information about our ministry, visit our website at ridgeline.church. If you enjoy the podcast, consider subscribing on the platform of your choice. Thanks again for listening, and I pray God's Spirit uses this message to revive you in a fresh way. So I want to start this morning by talking about the Old Testament and what we do with it. We have a tendency to think the Old Testament doesn't have anything to do with us. It's hard to relate to. So by and large, we don't know what to do with the Old Testament. As I've been studying the Old Testament the past couple months, the truth is the way God was interacting with people then, even though it's not about us, we can see ourselves in it because it mirrors our own lives, failures, and doubts. We sometimes experience long seasons in our life that feel like wandering. And we look for whatever's next that might be better than whatever we're experiencing right now. And with everything going on, many of us, if not all of us, are doing some of that same soul searching right now. The Old Testament is full of that. People like us especially the Israelites, which is who we are going to focus on, focus on and learn more about today. So if you were here last week, in last week's message about Hannah, Ryan explained how her son Samuel was the last judge of Israel, the leader of the Israelites prior to the monarchy. In the story of Samuel, we see their pattern of constant wandering come to a head. The feeling of languishing was familiar to these people in the early pages of the Bible. And we're all feeling that right now. Like us, they were looking for an easy way out. Like us, they were looking for something new. So we are going to focus on three failures of the Israelites today that mirror our own. We reject Christ as our king. We abandon relationship with him and we worship other gods. So open your Bibles or your apps to the book of 1 Samuel. We'll be in chapter 8 today, and I'm calling this message, The Shortest Path to Freedom. As you are turning there, let me take a minute to explain where Samuel fits into the overarching narrative of Scripture. The Bible is a story about God's design for freeing humanity to flourish the way he created us to through his son, Jesus. Samuel's story happens at a critical moment that starts the line of Israel's kings that ultimately leads to Jesus. Between God using Moses to rescue the Israelites out of Egyptian slavery and the events leading up to Samuel, there is a pattern. The Israelites want God to rescue them. So he sends them a deliverer called a judge and after he, each time he does rescue them, they don't want to relate to him. Let's read starting in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 1. When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as judges over Israel. His firstborn son's name was Joel, and his second was Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. 
However, his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned toward dishonest profit, took bribes, and perverted justice. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and went to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, Look, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Therefore, appoint a king to judge us, as the same as all the other nations have. When they said, God, give us a king to judge us, Samuel considered their demand wrong, so he prayed to the Lord. So what we learn here are three things. Samuel's sons are the worst. The people want to be like the rest of the world. And Samuel, as their leader, he's upset. So again, Samuel is the latest in a line of judges who were appointed by God to lead the Israelites as they made it into the promised land. Now Samuel's sons weren't fit to lead. And the people recognized this as a huge risk with Samuel getting old to not try to figure out something to do to solve this problem. Now the Bible gives us a little bit of detail here about the nature of what disqualified Samuel's sons. However, it's important to focus on the fact that their behavior was used as leverage to prompt a national outcry for governmental change. And we can all relate to this because I'm actually, I don't think we have time to get into all the reasons why. So I'll just say this. We say in God, we trust. Do we really? Samuel did. And we can imagine the trouble Samuel is facing here. He knows what's up with his sons. He's not arguing with that. The buck now stops with him to figure out what happens next. We can empathize with Samuel needing to pray here. His plan has been rejected, but more than that, he senses something evil is happening here. As the leader of a nation, Samuel must be a very capable person, so I'm sure he could have found a way to control or steer the situation. But that's not what Samuel did here. He prayed. You can tell he's a faithful person because when faced with uncertainty, he goes to God. Let's pick back up in verse 7. And pay extra close attention here because this is God speaking. But the Lord told him, Listen to the people and everything they say to you. They have not rejected you. They have rejected me as their king. They are doing the same thing to you they have done to me. Since the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day, abandoning me and worshiping other gods. Here we see God responds with clear directives to help Samuel out. And there's such grace in the fact that God redirects any self-doubt Samuel might be experiencing. God asks Samuel to listen to everything the people are saying. And he highlights three clear failures. And practically, these represent three fails common in our life. And the first is this. We reject Christ as our king. So where did this king idea come from? In Deuteronomy 17, 14, Moses says, when you enter the land your Lord, the Lord your God is giving you, take possession of it, live in it, and say, I will set a king over me like all the nations around me. 
You are to point over you the king, the Lord, your God chooses. So Moses already said there would be a king. This is important context since the people, the elders, and Samuel were already expecting to get a king at some point. This points us to an important truth. Their problem wasn't wanting a king. It was rejecting God as their king. I'll say it again. Their problem wasn't wanting a king. It was rejecting God as their king. God promised them a king. Their problem was that they wanted a king like the nations around them. They specifically didn't want a king who would follow God. They wanted a human king to ward off enemies. They wanted to be like the rest of the world, and they wanted a better better human representative. Which makes me think about us. So who is our king? If our hope for this country and world is who sits in the Oval Office, then we have rejected Christ as our king. Because it's his world. Our hope is in Christ alone. So are we like Israel, hoping political leaders will solve our spiritual problems? To do what only God can do. What we see in the book of Samuel is an in-depth analysis of what makes for good and bad leadership. And what is true for leaders is true for all of us in our choices for or against God. And yet it seems Israel's failure is our failure. Because still today, we reject Christ as our king. That's our first common failure. The second common failure in our life is we abandon relationship with him. When you read this, what you should feel is God's heart breaking. God has always desired real relationship with us. Instead, we spend time and energy seeking a better human representative. That's what religion does. In Exodus 20, they told Moses to go up the mountain because they didn't want to relate with God. They wanted a better human representative. With Samuel, his sons, and the kings to come, Israel is constantly trying to level up their human representative. What God promised was a theocratic monarchy. A human king who is the representative of God and followed God. Israel didn't care about that so much. They wanted a king who was impressive from a human vantage point. They wanted to cut God out of their leadership. And to what end? How many kings will it take? And what might God be feeling when his children abandon him? So I experience abandonment from my children on a daily basis. So I'd love to share you an, an example of this. I have three young daughters who like to go to the zoo. And recently I took my youngest two, Lella and Indy. And if you've been to our zoo here, it's, it's smaller compared to most zoos, I think. But it's easily two or three miles of walking if, if you really want to see it all. And believe me, my girls, they do. They like all the animals. So... I know this, and I know there's got to be a plan if we want to keep it efficient. So I take the time, you know, we get there, I take out the double stroller, 
Buckle them in, get them all nice and situated, snacks, water. I'm, I'm thinking through everything that can go wrong. And we walk into the zoo, you know, and I'm feeling pretty good. Okay, we're going to do this. It's going to be great. Daddy and his daughters, we're going to get through this. No meltdowns. And of course, what inevitably happens with about 20 steps into the zoo, both girls unbuckle themselves, get out of the stroller, and proceed to go their own way. They proceed to, you know, explore, because that's what they do. But my favorite part is I'm standing there walking with an empty stroller as I see the faces of all the people walking towards me, and I can tell that their smirk means they, they get the absurdity of what's happening here. So my two-year-old loves to explore, and she kept practicing her natural skill of always walking in the opposite, exact opposite direction of the next animal we wanted to see. I say, Indy, come back, come back. We're going this way. We just came from that way. So we saved the best for last, the baby gorilla, all right? And we just came from the bears, so if you've been there, this is like half the length of the entire zoo to get from where we were to, to where we needed to be. And I could see the signs of them fading. We had already been there well over an hour, almost two. They were getting wary, and Indy finally gets back in the stroller, so that's great, but Lella, she's more determined. She's my four-year-old. She wanted to lead the way. She's like 20, 30 steps ahead, and it's half the length of the zoo, and I forgot to mention, it's mostly uphill. <laughs> and I knew she wouldn't make it. But I kept saying, Lella, come on, come get back in the stroller, honey. Daddy will push you, we'll get there, we'll see the baby gorilla. She said, no, Daddy, no, I got this. I, wa I want to do it, I want to do it myself. And so she keeps going, keeps going, a few more steps. All right, honey, I, I can see your legs are getting tired, why don't you get in? Still no, Daddy. So I let her go, and she keeps going, and finally, boom. Falls to the ground, meltdown, daddy, I'm too tired. And as much as I want to say, I told you so, I didn't. I, I proceed to help her get into the stroller, and I, and I push her up that hill, and just full disclosure, it's even pretty hard for me. Like, the hill's pretty steep. But we get to the baby gorilla, and the rest of our day is great. This had less to do with her ability, and more to do with my familiarity with the challenge. I knew the best way to get them there without melting down, but they kept abandoning me. We can laugh about it when it's my girls, but it's not so funny when we do that to God. He knows what we need, yet we go our own way. The Creator knows what's best for His creation. He loves us and He wants to relate with us. So how do we make Christ our chief relationship? And how do we recognize when he isn't? Are we really spending time relating with God? Or have we farmed that out to the 60 minutes we spend with Pastor Ryan each Sunday? Is that the extent of our relationship? But let's think about what that looks like for us, day to day, to have Christ firmly placed as our chief relationship. What does it cost? What does it free us up to do? Is there an hour here or there we typically spend staring at a screen? Could we be missing out on something God wants to teach us in those moments? What is God teaching us? His deepest desire is to know you and to love you well. Our second common failure is we abandon relationship with him. And here's the third failure we have in common with the Israelites. 
We worship other gods. I'll just reread that last part one more time. They are doing the same thing to you that they have done to me since the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day, abandoning me and worshiping other gods. This is probably tricky for our modern minds to interpret when a lot of the Old Testament examples of worshiping other gods, they involve physical statues, celestial bodies, words we don't use in our everyday language. Yes, Israel has a pattern of that too, but in this case, their idol was political. They were trying to apply a political solution to a spiritual problem. Plain and simple, they didn't want to worship God. And neither do we. So how do we know what we worship? Author Louis Giglio simplifies this thought process for us. You simply follow the trail of your time, your affection, your energy, your money, and your allegiance. At the end of that trail, you will find a throne. And whatever or whomever is on that throne is of what is of highest value to you. On that throne is what you worship. The trail never lies. In the end, our worship is more about what we do than what we say. So most days I spend all my time on my work, my hobbies, entertainment, and my family. While God gets literally zero time, energy, and attention. What I worship is being able to control whatever I can see in front of me. And as a result, I often find myself on a dark and uncertain path, feeling very distant from God. So what is it for us? Is it a person? Is it a thing? Is it an activity? This next one caught me off guard, so wait for it. Is it the Bible? I'd never heard of bibliolatry before studying for this but that can be an idol too. Bibliolatry is the worship of a book. The Bible is not God. This was the Pharisees' mistake. Even with Jesus in their very midst, they were content to twist scripture into a set of rules rather than to have an actual relationship with the very one the book is about. And I get that it might be easier to have a relationship with a book at least compared to trying to relate with an unseen presence in any ordinary moment. But practically, practically, what does it look like to practice that? Do we spend time on a daily basis sitting alone in the presence of God? Do we speak aloud or do we just sit and try to listen? Are we comfortable doing that? Should we be? How do we rhyme less with the pages of human history and more with the heart of God? How do we rhyme less with the pages of human history and more with the heart of God? It's going to take time and energy. It's going to be very different from what's common in our culture. So to recap, we just talk about three failures common in all of our lives. We reject Christ as king, we abandon relationship with him, and we worship other gods. We read these three failures straight from the mouth of God as he spoke to Samuel. 
Let's finish in verse 9. God says, listen to them, but solemnly warn them and tell them about the customary rights of the king who will reign over them. Samuel told all the Lord's Lord's words to the people who were asking him for a king. Isn't that amazing? God says, listen to the people. Samuel, give them more detail on what they are buying into. Then he says, give them what they are asking for. God loves us so much, he allows us to run down these paths, even if he knows it's not best for us. Even if he knows it's going to take us longer to get back to him and find the freedom we're looking for. God knows exactly what they need, and he offers himself as the most convenient way to be protected and satisfied. Yet they look to the world for answers, and God dignifies our decisions. So here's what happens to Israel from here. It doesn't go great for them. Samuel is faithful to do everything God and Moses said to make this transition into installing Saul as the first king of Israel. Can you guess how many chapters it takes before this first king fails in such a way that he loses favor with God and gets replaced? I'll give you a hint. You can count it on one hand. Now, King David was a man after God's own heart. But he failed too. So did his sons. King after king after king for centuries. Every king continues to fail until Jesus. Israel wanted a better human representative, so 1,100 years later, God gave them a perfect one. His own son, Jesus. And what did they do? They murdered him, which is good news for us, because when God gave his own son, who through his life and death paid for our sin, he gave us the shortest possible path to freedom, which brings us to our big idea. The shortest shortest path to finding freedom is making Christ the chief relationship in our lives. I'll say it again. The shortest path to finding freedom is making Christ the chief relationship in our lives. In Christ alone, we are made right with God, our Father, and we enjoy enjoy the freedom to relate with him. This is the good news of the Bible. God loves us so much more than we can possibly imagine. And he's extended an invitation to relationship with you through the person and the work of his son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross in our place. The short path is always available. For us, it's just a question of when. When will we stop wandering and choose him? When will we stop trying to earn and simply trust that he is enough for us? And how will we acknowledge that we are not on this road alone? People all around us have the same drives and desires, and we can help each other. We can rely on one another to remind us of who God is and what he is capable of the power we have in him, the fact that he is always faithful, and the fact that he constantly encourages us, and we can encourage each other. So the story of the people in the Old Testament is very much like ours today. The Israelites were on a very long road, 
And we are on that same road. Yet we see the same faithful God. How often do we stop to think about it? Have we abandoned a father who loves us? As I was preparing this message, I took a moment to try to imagine what God must feel like. What he's always felt like. What he feels for us now. And all throughout the centuries he spent with the Israelites, his chosen people. Here's a dad who's not loved by his own kids. If you can imagine that as a dad, that's pretty awful. Now, we're not all parents here. This hits me in a different way. I can't help but think of my daughters. What if at 18 years old, even one of them decided she didn't want me anymore, ran off with some other guy? Yeah, I can't even say it. The idea of it, it just cuts through me. It hurts. This is a terrible thought exercise. But maybe it helps relate to what God must be experiencing. And I guess my question is that, do we all take the time to relate to God, our Father? Do we take the time to consider what He feels? Not just think as He thinks. Not just a theological exercise but to really wrestle with the reality of our situation. Acknowledging that we are his creation, while also admitting that we continue searching for something new. And in doing so, we abandon him. Here's my last question for us today. Do we know what a real relationship with him feels like? Probably a little different for everybody since we're all in a different place. We all have different backgrounds. God designed us with different skills, different needs, and he provides for us in different ways. But if it's the same faithful God we read about in scripture, we should feel comforted. If he's taking our burdens, we should feel lighter. If he's our source of strength, we should feel strong. He's not out of reach. We might struggle to find the words and it might feel mysterious, but he is ever-present. He is waiting nearby. My hope for all of this, for all of us this week is this, that we would spend time asking questions like these as we learn how to relate with God. That we would learn how to talk to him, talk to him about our desires, talk to him about our interests, what's new. Because what the Israelites were doing wasn't inherently a sin. It's that they wanted to do it without him. Let's not make that mistake. Let's stop wandering and take our mess to him. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are ever faithful. That the same God we see in the pages scripture is the same God in this room with us right now. We thank you that you love us so well. We thank you that you gave your son. We thank you that you continue to reach out to us, to want to spend time with us, to want to hear from us. We thank you that you love us 
in a way we can understand. We thank you that you speak to us through your word. We just ask that your spirit would saturate our hearts and our minds and that we would learn to relate with you, that we would learn to spend time with you. But Lord, more than anything, I just pray that you would be glorified today, that you would be glorified through everything that happens after this today, Lord, we just give it to you. We give you this time and we ask you to renew our hearts. We ask your spirit to give us the confidence to approach you in a new way. Help us to see ourselves as your children. Help us to see ourselves as children who can approach their daddy and wrap in an embrace and just have you love on us, have you speak over us, just sit in your presence and hear from you and not feel like we have to perform, not feel like we have to be good enough, but trust that you are enough, Lord, that your love is enough, that your word is enough, that your son is enough. We thank you, Lord. We give you this time. In your name we pray. Amen.